Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. And here's your 30-second summary. Sometimes you have to color the background around a figure in order to reveal it to yourself. That's what we're doing today with the mathematician and philosopher whose death marked the end of a great era of human progress. Let's talk about Hypatia of Alexandria. But first, let's drop her into history. In 415 AD, newish inventions included the vending machine, the public hospital, the earthquake detector, and the steam turbine. It was 445 years after Cleopatra died, over 350 years after Agrippina the Younger walked the earth, and it would be another thousand years before Eleanor of Aquitaine would rule. The world was sandwiched between the waning years of the Roman Empire and the rising of the Dark Ages, when, in 415 AD, Hypatia of Alexandria's life ended in a most dramatic way. Hello, and welcome to the show. We are going in the Wayback Machine today, so rather than jump right into Hypatia's story, we thought we'd begin with a little background on her environment, specifically the city of Alexandria in which she lived. The city was founded around 331 BC, an ideal layout overlaid on an existing town right on the coast. Like if Egypt's a squarish sort of place, it's right in the center, top, directly on the Mediterranean Sea. And you know how cities become famous for different things? Las Vegas for gambling, LA for the movie industry, Kansas City for barbecue. You can fight me about that one. Um, <laughs> That's funny. It's so true, though. <laughs> it is true. Well, Alexandria developed a reputation for wisdom. During the construction of Alexandria, an institute called the Museum of Alexandria was built. Museum means institute devoted to the muses. Our modern word museum comes from this, like auditorium, dedicated to hearing, sanatorium, a place of healing, vomitorium, use your imagination. Sorry, that does not fit the pattern. Vomitoriums were not places you could go to hurl up all that food you ate just to make more room in your belly to eat. They were actually just open doorways. I guess it was a marvel of Roman engineering that auditoriums were designed to fill and empty quite quickly. And one person after Hypatia's era proclaimed that the auditoriums looked like they were vomiting people out into the streets and those doors became the vomitoriums. Not to say they didn't vomit after a meal because they sure did, but just not in a room dedicated for that purpose. Except in the Hunger Games, where they have Roman names, if you think about it. Cinna, Portia, Flavius, Octavia, even Effie, I think, is Euphemia. <laughs> well, back to Hypatia's story and the museum. How many muses were there exactly? Nine, seven, three? There were five in Disney's Hercules. Regardless of their number or their names, the muses were the goddesses who represented such things as history and music and astronomy and poetry. And it was a place for scholars to work and network, I guess, although I hate that term, to discuss and argue and create. It was almost like you'd think of a university with students coming in and out and specialists just the atmosphere of crackling brainfulness there. Now, part of this museum was the famous Library of Alexandria, whose mission it was to get copies of every book, which would be a scroll at this time, that existed. So if you were a traveler coming to Alexandria, you could fully expect to pull up and have soldiers block your path. 
and another crew would march out from the dock area and they would search you and search your boat for reading material, which they would just take off away from you to be copied and filed. And I do not think you got your own book back. They may have given you the copy if they were being generous, but I I think you lost it. That's how seriously they took it, this pursuit of knowledge. They wanted to get a hold of every single thing that humans had ever written. Their point was that anything you wanted to look up should be available. And if that sounds familiar, well, we've got in the United States a library called the Library of Congress, which comedically started out as sort of a weird, eclectic collection of random books that was donated by Thomas Jefferson. And later, in the 1870s, they started to require any copyright holder to give two copies of their work to the library. So it's a modern version of shaking you down for scrolls at the boat dock. And so it goes. For hundreds of years, layer upon layer of knowledge, the library itself burned at least a couple times. We covered the tragedy in 48 BC, Julius Caesar's accidental fault, I guess. Cleopatra watched it burn in episode 46. And that's not the only time it burned, by the way. The remnants, you know, you'd have leftovers that would move other places. And the remnants caught fire several more times. I have to tell you, that's a pretty epic loss each and every time to the world. But the learning went on, the spirit of the museum went on, the quest for knowledge went on. Literature, medicine, philosophy, math, history, biology, astronomy. And so we come to the 4th century AD, 650 to 700 years after the founding of the city. And it's now a very rich trade center in more than knowledge. And in the house of a man named Theon, a noted teacher at the museum, a little girl named Hypatia was born. When exactly Hypatia was born is up for debate. Uh, Somewhere between 350 and 380. The problem, of course, is the farther back you go, the less you know, the less it's written down. And she was a girl. So things about girls definitely weren't written down. So uh, they have to kind of puzzle her life together. That's the closest they can get, 350 to 380 AD. Yeah, I think that's the worst range of doubt we've ever had in the show. Yeah, that's a good range of doubt. I like it. Yeah. 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 Well, it will surprise no one that typically, being your average girl, you're not going to be taught to read and write. But as we talked about in the Cleopatra episode, Egypt was a little more progressive with regard to women. Yes, your overwhelming number one role in life was still mother, wife, household manager, but they could own property. They could run a business. And I was just thinking like in the Middle Ages, people were super good at math in their head who were otherwise illiterate. You know, they could make change when it was their money on the on the line. Women could divorce. And most importantly for our story, they were allowed to be in the public eye. We don't know a lot about Hypatia's childhood. We normally have this whole series of we're going to high school. We have these friends. We played at this and we really don't know. I know. I kind of imagined it as one of those um, movie montages that are all like wispy and there's Hypatia learning things from her father at the kitchen table and then learning things from him in a classroom and then learning things from other people and maybe going on a boat to learn things someplace else before she comes back as this educated woman. If she was born before 365, she would have been alive when there was this great tsunami in Alexandria. It's the one that started to change the course of the coast of the city because the water went out. People were like, oh, good, let's go ransack those boats. And then the tsunami came in and destroyed like 50,000 houses and killed just as many people in this one tsunami. So you 
could have been alive when that happened. That's not a good thing. I know. Can you imagine? And she would have been a child, right? Well, she would have been six. Yeah. 25. Okay. Or six, 15. Oh, hi. Hi. I'm not Hypatia. The math in my head is bad. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I can only imagine that Papa tutored her in all of his own subjects. I'm sure he had friends that were willing to pitch in on the ones he wasn't so down with. And that taking after her Papa who was generally considered the most learned man in a whole city full of geniuses. I can only assume that she thirsted for answers and before long began to pass old papa in certain areas. And we don't know a thing about Hypatia's mother. Hypatia's mother could have been a brilliant woman herself. We'll just never know. If anything Hypatia exhibited came from her mother, was her mother even alive when Hypatia was alive? Did she die in childbirth? We just don't know. There is a mother-shaped hole in this whole story. Yeah. In my little movie montage of her life, it's just the two of them. It's just a father-daughter family. But You know, I can just imagine them spending their time at home forgetting to eat dinner while they pose unanswerable questions to each other and debating and I... I just wish I knew if Mama was there rolling her eyes and calling them nerds or like got right in there. And there is actually there's a thought that she might have had a brother, but it can't be proven at all. So, again, that goes just back to my image of just um, Theon and Hypatia. And maybe I don't give Theon enough credit, but I keep thinking if Theon had had a son, that would be it for Hypatia. But maybe he was a more enlightened man. Yeah, well, he was the most educated in the city, right? His brain was thinking at that level. So, yeah, maybe he was like, why can't my daughter learn these things? She's clearly very intelligent um, and she can grasp them. So, yeah, let's go. So Papa suggested that she herself should begin to teach. And so she did. Word is she may have taught at home rather than being out in the public teaching. Um, There's no way to know. Every depiction of her shows her in a forum teaching a full class in the public. So we can take that with a grain of salt. We'll never know. It doesn't matter. Um, But she did. She taught and was probably the only woman to do so, though there were definitely other female philosophers and even doctors at the time. Hypatia was... Uh, In addition to being ferociously smart, she was a great teacher. She was good with people, and these things don't often go together. I've been to college. (laughs) Well, her reputation grew, and soon students were coming from all over the area and all over the empire to attend her classes. Her students loved her. I'm sure many of them had a crush on her because at the beginning of her career, Hypatia was described as, quote, exceedingly beautiful and fair of form, in speech articulate and logical, in her actions prudent, public-spirited, and the city accorded her special respect. But she was determined to remain virtuous, is how I'm going to put it. As part of her life philosophy, and we'll go into that a little bit later, virtue was a big part of it. And she did, as from every uh, resource that we could see, she did not have any romantic relationships in her entire life. She remained a virgin for her whole life. She did get quite a few marriage proposals. There's one story, and I hope it's true. We have obviously no way to verify it, but it's been passed down um, where one of her students had deep feelings for her. And he would follow her around and flatter her and flirt with her. And she would tell him no. And he, like 
some men would not take no for an answer. So one day Hypatia took him aside as he's like proclaiming his love. She reaches into her bag and hands him her bloody menstrual rags. She says, this is what you love. This is the reality of woman. What you feel is love is really lust. Woo! Basically, I'm not an idol, Charlie. I'm just a woman. That's (laughs) right. Philosophy aside, I do believe this would be an effective smotherer of unwanted love. (laughs) You guys can try it and tell us how it goes. That's right. I just kind of wonder about this. Like, your oracle at Delphi, the priestesses there follow the same procedures and were taken very seriously. I just... Someone has got to explain to me how love ruins up your mind <laughs> or whatever. I don't. I kind of don't get it. I mean, it's a fact that it was a um, positive attribute as far as society was concerned. Well, and in this, she may have been following the teachings of Plato himself, a man she had read quite thoroughly as a young woman. Um, and he says there are two kinds of love, the lesser, the lower which is attraction to a beautiful person. Boo. Reproduction. Yuck. And then there's the divine, which transforms the joy of seeing the beautiful other into love for the supreme beauty, the ideal, the absolute. So you're going to end up aging out of followers here unless you have some backsliders, Plato. (laughs) Um, That's what happened to the Shakers. In fact, I think there's only two left. One, two. Anyway, there is a reason we call it platonic love. Just a little aside for you there. (laughs) This is probably a good time to take a break. And when we come back, we'll talk more about Hypatia as a teacher. one student of hers in particular that we should mention, Cynesius, whose surviving letters, over 150 of them, have given the world a lot of what we know about Hypatia at all. He was her student for only a few years, but wrote her throughout his lifetime on matters big and small, and eventually he became, at last, the Christian bishop of Ptolemais, which is modern in modern-day Libya, and a very influential man. Lots of Hypatia's students became influential men. I only wish she'd taught some ladies. I looked for evidence that that had happened, and of course I find nothing. There could have been a whole room full of them, but we just don't know. No. So what exactly were these students learning from her? Well, in addition to math, particularly geometry, simply put what we'd now know as science, especially physics and astronomy. And Hypatia was also a known philosopher, a follower of what's called Neoplatonism. While she was learning all of her philosophies growing up, one of them did stick with her that she adopted it as her own philosophy, and that would make her an expert on it, right? Because that's how she lived. It was called Neoplatonism. It was based off the teachings of Plato, you know, Neo. Platonism. And in her time, it would have been considered Platonism because that's what it was to her. It wasn't 
labeled that until like the 1800s. Right. This is the part (laughs) reminded me so much of college and my head hurt and I felt like I was going to get a test. And actually that test feels like it's right this minute. Okay, this is my Neoplatonism for, well, I'm not going to say dummies, but Susan's. Neoplatonism teaches that there's a three foundational elements, the one, the intelligence, and the soul. It adds religious and mystical elements to Plato's teaching, um, where his was more academic and straightforward. This adds another element, the one. The beliefs are centered on a supreme divine entity, that's the one, and everything comes from that. The intellect, which creates the soul, which creates matter, all emanates from the one. How do you get to the one? By a life of virtue and deep thought and discussion and trying to understand the world, which is exactly what Hypatia was doing. The one, the ideal or the absolute is within everything finite. So any objects, all humans, all thought, everything creates the ideal, and the ideal creates everything. So when you talk about the movement of the stars or the function of gravity or the patterns in nature, you're also talking about the essence of humanity. So oversimplified right now that philosophy professors are fanning themselves all over the world. Woo! Philosophy to me (laughs) is like one of those jigsaw puzzles they sell where all the pieces are the same color. You know, it's like all blue. You know, they go together in a linear fashion, but it's so confusing. And also, maybe you give up halfway through and put it in the cabinet. So we'll give you a link. (laughs) Yeah, we will. Actually, we can give you more than one because I was trying to research as many as I could. And like I said, it just reminded me of college. And I did really well in my philosophy classes. I don't know why. (laughs) I felt every, I'd walk out and I felt like my head was like, mush because there were so many abstract ideas that I was trying to reconcile with. And I I, I mean, I don't know. (laughs) Well, one thing is clear that questioning everything, investigating everything was a part of Hypatia's philosophy that I can get behind 100 percent. Oh, Um, definitely. And that's what she taught. She was such a good teacher that she was named the head of the Platonist school of Alexandria. So she ran the school. That's how great she was at getting this information um, from an idea into a brain. Well, and she was also known for discussing, say, the works of Plato or Aristotle on the streets with anyone who cared to stop her. She was wearing her simple scholar's robe called a tribon, and she was a public figure and a beloved one. Um, and a visible one striding through the streets. Hypatia was also known for her ability to construct and use scientific instruments, such as the hydrometer, which measures the density of liquids. And Hypatia is often given credit for inventing this. But unfortunately, she did not. (laughs) It was invented long before she lived. But a letter from Synesius, remember him, uh, to her asking for her to make one seems to explain to her what it was and just how to construct one, which if you were writing to the person that invented it, wouldn't you just write one hydrometer, please, XXOO Synesius? (laughs) Yeah. I don't know how she got the credit for inventing it, but also a device called the astrolabe. Yeah, she's often given credit for this, but it really... Again, it was invented 600 years before she was even born. Uh, What it is is a high-tech device that tracks the 
stars could tell time and would help navigate. It was like an all-purpose instrument. She did not create it, but she may have improved upon it. You move the hands or the dials to some kind of known factor, like a time or a place, and then the astrolabe will show you the rest of the puzzle, the answer to your question. Um, You could line it up with the stars. It kind of reminded me of a sextant, and it kind of looks... We'll give you a picture of one on our show notes, but um, it was a pretty handy little device, I'll tell you that, but she didn't invent it. There is a giant one of these, or at least a variation on an astrolabe here in downtown Kansas City. Uh, An artist friend of mine did some of the decorative work on it, and so I went to its dedication in 2008. It's actually, officially, it's the world's largest anaphoric star disc. It's kind of a precursor to the astrolabe, but nonetheless, it's the biggest one in the world, and it's um, right by my house. Really? Where is it? It's at a park downtown. Oh, it's an outdoor thing? Mm-hmm. Oh, you cool. Can, I think I'd like to see that. And you can move it yourself. You you have dials and you yourself can put it to wherever you want it. It's an interactive art exhibit. Oh, love it. Um. So also she may have known familiarly something that was a great mystery for many, many, many years, a machine called the Antikythera Mechanism. It's a device that predicted the movement of the planets and predicted lunar and solar eclipses. They found one in a shipwreck in 1900, and people were so confused about what it was. For a couple years, in fact, they thought it was just like a piece of junk and left (laughs) it just sitting. Nobody even (laughs) looked at it. And slowly, as people started to look at it, Not really even until the 1970s did they fully start to understand what this was. A device that was too technologically advanced for the time period it seems to be found from. It was blowing people's minds. It was the first analog computer, in fact. And I've got a link in um, the show notes that is to an Antikythera mechanism that people have made out of Legos. So it'll bring a little levity and a little more understanding to what this machine does. And you can all practice saying that on your own because I am so glad you're the one that pronounced it. I just love all these old machines. I think they're so cool. I mean, it's just a reminder of how much got lost. Right, exactly. Well, how much got lost and how somebody had thought of it before the modern version of it was invented. It's like there's nothing new, right? (laughs) There's nothing new. Just stuff we forgot. That's right. That's like every time they find those like um, screws in a block of granite, I think, you know what? That's that's a civilization that was there so long ago, we forgot all about it. Mm-hmm. I, yeah. I always wonder about that stuff. Well, among other writings, most of her writings were lost to time and to the riots, spoiler alert, she and her papa wrote and published commentaries on great works of their past. Um, Euclid's Elements, which is the definitive text in the history of ancient geometry. She did a lot of work on Apollonius's work about properties of cones. Bless them. I'm glad somebody likes to do this. <laughs> I, you know what? This is We'll talk about this in media, but I did not even really understand that until I saw it in a movie. Like the, how the cone breaks down into different shapes. Yeah, uh-huh. I that was totally lost on me. I I must have slept through those classes in high school because I was like, oh, that's so cool. <laughs> well, I wrote down cones, properties of circles, and that reminds me of that line in The Breakfast Club. You know, there are other children in my group. We talk about physics, properties of physics. So it's social, <laughs> demented and sad, but social. <laughs> yeah. Do you know I'm only giggling because I 
am not certain I would comprehend it. So I'm just saying all of them are on a higher plane than I. uh, Yeah, and you are on a higher plane than I, especially as far as this is concerned. Uh, Anyway, also, Ptolemy's astronomy, called the Almagest, which incidentally stated that the Earth was in the center of the universe and the sun, etc., went around it. It's called geocentric theory, um, which was common commonly accepted as the way things were, not really disproven until the late 1500s by Johannes Kepler and his laws of planetary motion. You know what? Much is made, especially in fiction, of the possibility of Hypatia's maybe discovering the truth about the sun being in the center of the system. It's called the heliocentric theory. That's what we think today is that the sun's in the middle, you know. Right, yeah. (laughs) Uh, She was an expert on cones and circles and parabolas, which evidently are the ovals that the planets take. Um, All her mathematical knowledge fit in with figuring this out. She had access to that and to centuries of astronomical data and the drive, I guess, to not only see patterns and reconcile everything, but the fact is, who knows? There's no record of either her work on this or her findings. And I want to believe that a brilliant woman scooped Kepler by 1,200 years, but we just don't have the evidence. And so any work of fiction where she makes this brilliant breakthrough is tugging at your heartstrings and not a lot more. I I wish we could introduce her to NASA. Maybe that's my one legitimate use of a time machine. (laughs) Yeah, she would really be great. Yeah, what you just said, there is no... Um, work that's attributed just to her. She apparently was a very great editor. She was great to go back over other people's work and make sure that it was correct. This is what she did with her father um, while he was alive. And spoiler alert, he died too. Um, (laughs) But there's no like mathematical theories that are attributed to her. Um, But she taught. And that's the thing. She could teach. That was her special unbelievable gift, right? And some of the work, though, of noted mathematicians, especially, only comes to us through the copies that she um, provided commentaries for. Mm -hmm. So it's as if all we had was the annotated Alice, but we never saw actually Alice in Wonderland, kind of. Right. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) Yeah. So in that respect, her scholarly dissection of other people's work has preserved that and expanded on it for future generations. So I'm not, we're not saying she wasn't valuable. She was critical. Mm-hmm. Just that none um, of her own work survived if it in fact existed. Right, right. Time goes on like it does. Papa died like they do. And Hypatia continued teaching. As they became men, as we said before, many of her former students became influential men and still came to her or wrote to her for advice, scientific or possibly more importantly, philosophical. Even those high-ranking men she hadn't taught uh, in the city recognized her wisdom and came to find her for help with their problems. And were there ever problems? This is probably a good time to take a break. And when we come back, we'll talk about those problems.
are back. So we have talked about the influential men who came to her for advice. There was a lot of turmoil in the city of Alexandria as Hypatia became an adult. A few decades before Hypatia was born, Emperor Constantine had made Christianity legal for the first time in Rome. They could worship openly, and so they did. They built churches, they attracted converts, etc. You know, it's famous what happened before to the Christians, fed to the lions for entertainment, and many less dramatic but equally horrible persecutions. Mm-hmm. which theoretically, now that they're legal, should be over. And by the time Hypatia was teaching, likely more than half her classes might have been Christians. And there were pagans and a large population of Jewish people in the town. And really no one in the city was getting along that well. No, there was conflicts all the time and, you know, conflicts and then retaliations. It was not a smooth transition within the Christian church to go from, you know, it was considered a cult to an organized religion because they couldn't agree on certain things. Even things like the Nicene Creed, the statement of Christian faith. Now, this was written in her lifetime, and it's still spoken. We say it in my church every once and again, almost the word for word, the way that it was written in 381. It be- begins, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, light of light, very God, very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. That's just the beginning, and it goes down for a few more paragraphs. Um, There was fighting about the meaning of things even in those sentences. So the Christian church was not in a solid place right then actually isn't in a solid place right now. I mean, they're still fighting about the same things. You tell me, not my department. (laughs) (laughs) Well, if there was, there'd just be Christian churches, but there's not. There's so many different denominations and they don't agree on certain things. Well, Hypatia would have had to navigate political tensions inside of her classes as well, of course, as those in outside life. But who you associate with can be seen as political, even though you might just be discussing philosophy or the stars. In the movie Agora, which we can talk about a little later, Hypatia kind of calms down a little bit of a spat between a pagan and a Christian student by using a statement from Euclid, a mathematical statement, if two things are equal to a third, then they are also equal to one another. So if you, the Christian, and you, the pagan, are equal to me as a human, We are all then equal. We are all brothers. So that was an interesting little application of mathematics to real life. I learned that as the transitive property of equality. Is that not the same thing? If A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. You're asking me? Yeah, yeah, don't ask me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, in the year 391, Emperor Theodosius issued a decree that made paganism illegal. Now the shoe was on the other foot. Christians began to take control of the city, not remembering how it felt to be oppressed, question mark, or maybe remembering and wanting revenge, which seems fully human to me, honestly. I don't like it, but I understand it. Or someone has to win here. It's going to be me. Or honestly, I kind of see it also maybe as a refusal to lose their new rights. They haven't had them that long, Mm -hmm. but it's unfortunate that they felt like they had to do it by destroying everybody else's rights. Yeah, and their temples. I mean, it was illegal to practice, but 
it was illegal to have these temples. And Theodosius ordered the closing of all of them. They were closed and the statues were torn down and they'd been up forever, right? And they're gone because of these, you know, newcomers. There was a new local sheriff in town, Bishop Theophilius of Alexandria was the boss now, at least the church boss, and he began destroying pagan artifacts like his big boss, the emperor, had ordered him to do, which of course made the pagans mad. So they attacked the Christians, the Christians retaliated, and ultimately forced the pagan faction to take refuge in a place called the Serapeum, which was an ancient temple in honor of the goddess Serapis. The main pagan temple in the city, the most magnificent of buildings in which probably the last remnants from the great library of Alexandria were housed. Maybe, you know, with all the writings that came afterward. It was splendid to a point that contemporaries of the temple said that words would only diminish its beauty. Well, the battle had become a siege. Christians on the outside... Pagans trapped within, and I'm sorry to say they had taken Christian hostages and were torturing them inside. So nobody's the bigger man here. From the emperor himself, the word came down. Okay, okay, the pagans, you have to let them go. But then you're to destroy that temple. And so great, you know, woo in the land. Yes, all right. So the pagans fled. The multiple things melted down. The smashable things smashed. Although it should be said, everyone was super nervous about destroying the big statue of Serapis, which I think is funny. Like, they're sure of their faith, they're sure, but then they look at the statue and they're like, um, they had a moment, they had a moment of doubt, and they had a brave soul. They, They had a brave soul cut off her head and see what happened. Everybody waited. (laughs) and then when nothing happened they went ahead and pulled the rest of it down yeah that's right (laughs) Um, there is a description of penis statues being carried over everyone's head to smash in the streets to the god priapus oh what a vision crowd surfing (laughs) yes um so the burnable things burned which that's the part that probably got to hypatia and certainly gets to me how much history has been destroyed by fire? Doesn't it just kill you? Like, forget mm-hmm. all those Jane Austen letters we're never going to read. Uh, yeah. At this point, maybe people's anger at others for religious practices erased a thousand years of science. So did they mean to do it? I don't think so on purpose i mean was it all passion in the moment stuff and i can't say but i will tell you that early christianity's mm, antipathy towards science is pretty well documented Mm -hmm. they weren't really into it so bishop theophilius died and was replaced by his nephew cyril hypatia though somehow had remained distant from the brouhaha with the other pagans. She kept to herself, she kept to her work, and somehow escaped censure. She kept teaching at great risk to her life, I think. I mean, Neoplatonism ran exactly afoul of the Christian, all-powerful, one-god philosophy. But there's enough similarities, I think, is what got Christians to her in the first place. But of course, the huge difference is Jesus isn't in the factor at all. So... Yeah, that's where she's getting crossed off. And there seems to be some thought that analyzing the Christian God's works, like his nature, his humans, like the data, the science, 
mm-hmm. was like nearly as bad as denying Jesus, kind of. Um, like we need nothing more than faith and all else is arrogance, kind of. Why do you need to know how it works? It just does. Let's keep, let's go from there. And right? from someone who is so into questioning everything, I don't think they were a good match at all. But she was pretty well connected all over the region. There's not a lot they could do right then. At least they didn't think so. The new prefect, Orestes, was on her side, for one, and he was a Christian. So you just have to glare and be angry that she's having the elite over to the house and flagrantly defying the law, prohibiting paganism, I guess. If you're Cyril, you just have to kind of stalk around unless you decide that you want to power grab. Orestes had a big problem, shaped like Cyril, is what I have to say about that. (laughs) Yeah, because Orestes is the civil law. He's the head of the civil government, where Cyril is the head of the religious factions. And he is wanting the power, right? He says, Christianity is the religion of this city, so I should be in charge. Then there's Orestes who's like, no, uh, here's some Roman soldiers that will tell you otherwise. There was an order of monks loyal to Cyril called the Parabolani, who were sort of Cyril's stormtroopers. Although unlike the stormtroopers, they dressed in black robes. Orestes was kind of the only real obstacle to full power, civil and religious. And he still had the support of the upper class in Alexandria, which is maybe tactically why he befriended people like Hypatia in the first place. A little bit of a, you know, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours kind of thing. I don't blame him. Uh, Also, he had the support of the Jews, which is a sizable percentage of the population. And this whole time is just sort of daily skirmishes then between the Parabolani and the Jews. Well, there seems to be a brouhaha that originated with Orestes prohibiting people people from getting rowdy and dancing and getting crazy during a festival. And somehow that turned into capital punishment. It turned into all out rioting through the city, unrest that started way back when Christianity was made legal, honestly, but now was very acute. And then the Jews created a trap letting it be known through the streets that the Christian church, St. Alexander, was on fire and anyone who came out to save it was chopped. Not good. No, it was definitely a trap and it worked because Christians were slaughtered in that church by the Jews. And of course, Cyril is not liking this one bit and he orders that all the Jews be banished from Alexandria. So there goes a good chunk of Orestes' supporters, right? During the riot, there was what is thought to be a direct assassination attempt on Orestes himself, a stone to the head, from which he recovered. And public opinion actually swung the way of Orestes. Weirdly, Cyril did not count on that. There's still some respect for the, quote, official of Rome, and people accepted the punishment of the would-be assassin. And that really surprised Cyril. Like, dang it! And now Orestes has guards, and he's untouchable, kind of psychologically now, and physically, So Cyril or his minions or his followers, we have no direct evidence that Cyril ordered this done or even thought of it. I'm just going to personalize the process. Um, (laughs) He looked around for an easier target. Well... Hypatia was a threat to him slash them on her own. She did have an influential body of decades worth of international students who were on her side. She was a linchpin of the elite, although I have to tell you that 
Silesius had died. He was not there to help her. Wouldn't he be the one, though? Well, uh, you would think because he was a bishop. Yeah. You know what? I think his last letter was to her before he died. Mm-hmm. Hypatia is kind of the symbol of the spirit of the old order around Alexandria. And so the campaign began. What about this friend of Orestes, this woman philosopher, this pagan woman who seems to have beguiled the whole city? And he spread the rumor that her advice was poisoning Orestes' mind from going to church anymore like a good Christian. That her advice to Orestes was anti-Cyril, anti-Christian, and was the key here to peace in the city. In later times, they said he called her a witch. They uh, said she had enchanted Orestes, that her tools that were scientific were actually tools from the devil for fortune telling and seeing into the future. This is though someone writing, you know, a hundred years after everyone concerned were gone. So, right. um, so the basic reason is A, to get to Orestes and send him a message and B, to remove the rallying point for what had gone before. Now, history does not know if Cyril ordered her murder or merely inspired it. Do you remember Henry VIII mentioning to the heir and to no one, will no one rid me of this troublesome priest? And then, hey, presto, Thomas Beckett is super dead. (laughs) How did that happen? Cyril kept his hands clean of the whole thing. But the Parabolani, they were inflamed. They were like, oh my gosh, this is my mission from God is to take care of this one thing that's causing all of our problems, they're thinking. And that is Hypatia. So they caught hold of her as she was coming home, either dragging her out of a chair or out of a carriage, which it doesn't matter in the least bit, dragging her to the church called the Caesarium, built by Cleopatra to honor Mark Anthony, which had been turned into a church, where I am going to give you the short G-rated version She died. And this is where I need the children to exit the room. I can't do anything to make the big story nice. So pause here. Exit. Make them a snack. Put on the headphones. um, And then I'll tell you the whole story. So I hope you're ready. I hope you've managed to get to the button because this is not good. After the men dragged her to this church... They ripped all of her clothing off and using roof tiles that they'd bashed kind of on the sides to make them sharp or perhaps oyster shells from the rubbish pile. Um, The translation is a little vague. They cut off her skin while she was still alive and then scraped the flesh from her bones. Is this a reasonable death even for a war criminal? Of course not. No. And for this person, this intelligent, beloved, innocent person, I can't imagine the scene. I can't even watch surgery scenes in Grey's Anatomy. These people, I mean, don't get me wrong. The Romans had been cruel too. This whole disrespect for human life thing is just something else. I Is it this time period? Is it, I don't know. I don't know what it is. But, but the Christians, I'm confused. Is it eye for an eye, like in Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, or is it turn the other cheek, like Matthew and Thessalonians and Peter? Does the Old or New Testament apply to murdering a woman who did nothing to you but teach some of you for 30 years? Is is that a question you want an answer to? Yes, I do. (laughs) Because sitting here, um, I say that it would be the apostles. It would be um, 
when Jesus came, he came to stop, you know, the old law. He said, the old law is no more. This is the new law. And the new law is going to, you're going to turn your cheek. You're, you know, it's not really an eye for an eye anymore. It's more of a, a loving message. That's my answer. So yes, New Testament. New Testament is probably how they should have gone from Susan Vollenweider's point of view. <laughs> I just don't know. And, you know, I'm not in their place. I have not endured what they have endured. I don't know their personal history, but I just can't forgive this particular attack, nor can I forgive the Christians in the Coliseum. So everybody's at fault here. Man. Well, they ripped off her limbs uh, and burnt them after they had dragged what remained of her body through the streets. It was the year 415, and Hypatia died somewhere between the ages of 45 to 65. Later, Cyril was canonized as a saint. Yeah. (laughs) And Orestes disappeared shortly after Hypatia's murder. Disappeared is in quotes. Did he disappear or did he just disappear from the records or I guess both? I don't know. Yeah, um, I was leaning towards he was murdered. But that's just because I wanted to, I don't know, up the body count? I'm not sure. But he disappeared right after. See, the timing seems suspicious to me. Yeah, yeah. Well, Cyril's called the champion of the faith in Christ. And a lot of the biographies of St. Cyril you'll read online sort of gloss over the whole Alexandria period and don't mention Hypatia at all, just so you know. He's sort of seen as a hard man for hard times, kind of a soldier for the faith, like Well, he's maybe not an angel, but he was the right man for the times, you know. Right. Um, Well, Rome was crumbling all over the place. The Christians were the bosses. Their word was the word. For the next at least 500 years, maybe even a thousand years, a period that had traditionally been referred to as the Dark Ages, that period of time after Rome's collapse to either the 10th or the 15th century in Europe, depending on who you're referencing, Now they just refer to it as the early Middle Ages and the later Middle Ages, Mm -hmm. mostly. It was a period of lost knowledge, whatever you call it. And the death of Hypatia is regarded by some as kind of the marker for the death of one of the great eras of progress. Intellectual things kind of limped along for a while. You still have Athens, the secondary barbecue city. You can fight for that title. But science sure took a beating, and it sure took a seat in the way back for quite a long time after this. Yeah, and our friend Hypatia pretty much slipped into obscurity. Nobody's talking about her, and there's no books that she wrote. So she could have—I wonder about this. If she wasn't murdered the way she was, would we ever have known about her? Because there are other women philosophers that came before and around her life. We don't know about them. She's often credited as being the first female mathematician, and that wasn't the case either. There was one that lived uh, right before her father was born. Would we have ever heard of her? And I sincerely doubt she would have thought that was worth it. No. So let's just do a little quick checklist here of things that she wasn't, because we, at this point, we all admire her, right? We respect her for her work. But there's all these rumors that are flying around that you will hear if you just Google, even if you get some books, you'll hear these. So as we talked about, she was not the inventor of the astrolabe or the hydrometer or anything. She may have improved upon them, but 
Um, she didn't invent them. She was not the last librarian of the Great Library. It was destroyed long before her time. She was not a mathematical researcher. Um, she helped write commentaries, but she didn't actually discover any you know, mathematical problems. She was not a young woman when she was murdered. She was between 40 and 60. So you'll see all these pictures of her and she's just this beautiful young woman, but that wasn't the case. She was older and she was not an atheist either. She was a Neoplatonist, which had an element of spirituality to it. So she couldn't have been, you know, a cut and dried atheist. Um, was she a feminist or was she just living her life? That is open for debate. And now it's time for books. I have one that I really like that is not a biography of Hypatia. I just want to start with it. And I actually think it is gift worthy for the holiday season, by the way. Oh. It's called Women in Science, 50 Fearless Pioneers Who Changed the World by Rachel Ignatovsky. And it, Hypatia is only, of course, an element in it, but it goes through history and talks about women who have made a difference in science. It is well illustrated and definitely a gift worthy book. All right. Good to know. I like that. Um, I think the big book on Hypatia is Hypatia of Alexandria by Maria. <laughs> I was going to just give it a go at Maria Zelska. It's D Z I E L S K A. Zelska. Yeah. There you go. Okay. That's good. All right. Yeah. That's pretty good. All right. Now my Polish relatives are probably happy, right? <laughs> At least I tried it. Um, and the secondary book that's usually um, kind of goes a companion book to that is Hypatia of Alexandria, Mathematician Martyr by Michael Deacon. And the two books are very similar in the story of her life, but Michael Deacon is a mathematician, so he comes at it from that angle. She's also featured in the book that we recommend so often. It ought to be number one on our Pinterest board, Rejected Princesses, by Jason Porath. Also very, very well illustrated. The thing I like about his illustrations, he footnotes elements of the illustrations that he's taken from his research. Kind of um, an annotated illustration. Yeah. There's a website. That's how it started. And the book came out this past year. Uh, he has the second book coming out. I was blown away by how many entries he had in that first book. It is, it's sizable. It was a gift for myself. I bought it because I loved it so much. So there's any number of children's books, all of which, or most of which, luckily, leave out the end. Um, because really, the, we had a hard time too. Like, what do you say at the end? The one I liked the best that I thought was very well illustrated and stops just short of when you need to explain things is called Of Numbers and Stars, The Story of Hypatia by D. Ann Love and illustrated by Pam Paparone. And they took a couple liberties with her life, but, you know, that's okay. And everybody does, right? Because there's not a full puzzle. I know. You kind of have to fill it in with marker. That's right. <laughs> um, there are two kind of ridiculous competing little um, pamphlets, shall I say, that you can get a hold of online if you want to. In the 1700s, there was a man named John Tolland who wrote an anti-Catholic propaganda piece entitled, and I have to take a deep breath because it's super long, <laughs> Hypatia, 
or the history of a most beautiful, most virtuous, most learned, and in every way accomplished lady who was torn to pieces by the clergy of Alexandria to gratify the pride, emulation, and cruelty of their archbishop, commonly but undeservedly styled St. Cyril. <laughs> yeah, I hope you don't have to type that on every page. And so then, uh, about ten years later, um, keep in mind, the author of the first one was Mr. Tolland. A man named Thomas Lewis wrote back with... The history of Hypatia, a most impudent schoolmistress of Alexandria, murdered and torn to pieces by the populace in defense of St. Cyril and the Alexandrian clergy from the aspersions of Mr. Tolland. <laughs> well, no, no uh, passive aggressiveness there. It's pretty much spelled out, isn't it? I also think it's funny that it's one of those things like where they capitalize every word, like the, oh. the headings in Dickens, mm -hmm. you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I hadn't, I hadn't seen those. Um, as far as documentaries go, um, there's a few things on YouTube. The one that I liked the best was Bethany Hughes. I'll give you a link to that. She's actually in Alexandria when she, you know, she's walking around and talking about the life of Hypatia and the history of the city. So you can see it. That's what I liked about that one. There's one scholarly lecture that I enjoyed. It's Hypatia Sifting the Myths with Dr. Fanny Smith. Um, I thought she was easy to listen to and she had a lot of information in there. I would strongly recommend watching that. If you don't want to sit through it, there is a transcript available on her webpage. So if you don't have time to listen to the whole lecture. I guess, well, that would be good if you like to, if you can, how you learn. I yeah. think that's, which is why I watched it. <laughs> <laughs> um, Hypatia actually does appear in Doctor Who. Uh, it was an episode with the seventh doctor and it involved a plot of kidnapping the greatest minds in history. And Hypatia was one of them. Yay. Yay. So also on YouTube, there is the Lego Antikythera mechanism, which is a little bit hard to understand when you see it as a blobule of rusted metal and you don't understand what its purpose is. But these guys have taken, and honestly, it's Lego Techniques, which is kind of the advanced Lego with motors and gears and whatnot. And they have made a replica of how it worked and they'll explain it to you and, you know, take it apart and explain what the various pieces do, which I thought was very entertaining. Cool. I can't wait to watch that one. There's a movie from 2009 called Agora starring Rachel Wise as Hypatia. Again, it's going to it's fiction, but based on fact, it's not a documentary. Um, they did try to put a little romance into it, which I did not like. Um, and they could have gone gorier with the uh, menstrual pad <laughs> portion. It was kind of pretty almost. Um, <laughs> but there's a secondary storyline about her and then her slave named Davis, who is apparently a brilliant guy and he picks up all this stuff from her. He was actually, I'm like, where is this guy from? His name is Max Minghella and he's Nick on the Hulu Handmaid's Tale. Oh. Yeah. Well, I'm like, sorry to say in this one, he's a fictional character. He plays someone that never existed and is there for narrative economy. Right. And to clean up her death, I think. I don't want to spoil it. But it's not her actual death. I can see why you didn't go with the original. Yeah, no kidding. And I do want to give a warning before you watch it. If you have a problem with um, sexual assault, um, there is a scene in there that is um, might 
give be a trigger for you. So just a little warning ahead of time for that. Also, I mean, they do a lot of playing with the facts. Um, some of the things that stuck out to me now, keep in mind, none of this bothered me for some reason. I think it's because maybe the actual story of Hypatia is so spider webby anyway. Um, that you kind of expect people to fill in the holes with some details. And I think they chose nicely to kind of give you a picture of her life and times. It's a period of time that you don't really hear about. It seems like everything stops with Cleopatra and then like, what? Nothing, you know? Mm -hmm. So I like, I like hearing about this part of history. It doesn't bother me, but Rachel Weiss is too young to play this part because beautiful Rachel Weiss while very good as Hypatia, is probably 30 years too young to play Hypatia at the end of her life. They have Silesia staying when, in fact, he doesn't stay and he was gone for most of his and her life. He wasn't around. And Orestes was never proven to have ever been her student, as shown in this particular depiction. He came in fully formed as the prefect. I think one of the reasons why you might have liked it is it did have a very high production value. Yes. <laughs> it was it was visually um, very pleasing. Apparently, the visual effects team um, made the skies historically accurate. They had all the equipment if the prop guys did their job right, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> she spent a lot of time looking at the sky. She was, in this particular version of her life, um, she was more astronomer than mathematician, but maybe that's because it was more... Uh, you could show it. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's something to see. So, um, I will say, if you're going to look at um, any film critics online, there are a lot of Catholics who had some major problems with this movie. And uh, I mean, the Christians are the bad guys. There's no getting around it at all. And Saint Cyril is not portrayed in a very uh, nice light. Let's put it that way. Well, and even some modern biographers, if they go into it at all, do admit that he used some dastardly tactics for the greater good, you know? Mm -hmm. Right. So if they mention all this at all, they kind of do admit that like, well, the ends justify the means. So, but I, I can see why they would have a problem with it even more than perhaps a regular biography. This movie does have to have a villain. You have to have a villain in a movie or else what, you know, what are you doing? So. Yeah, ex exactly. There was one quote in there that really stuck with me, and this doesn't actually happen very often. Um, it's towards the end, and Hypatia was talking to Sinesis, and she said, you don't question what you believe or cannot. I must. Mm -hmm. Oh, that just, I mean, that just stuck. It was, it was in my head during church. I thought, that just stuck with me really strongly. I don't think I, I honestly, I can't think of another line in any other movie that stuck with me so much. Wow. Weird. <laughs> okay. So I have a, I don't even know what to call this because I don't know that it comes up this much. I have a real life Easter egg kind of. Do you know what stood on either side of the cesarium? <laughs> Cleopatra's needles. The ones we talked about in both our Cleopatra and Hot Shepsut episodes, the obelisk in Central Park and the one on the embankment in London were witnesses to the murder of Hypatia. Yeah, that's pretty cool, right? That's, yeah. man, that is something. Talk about placed in history. I love that. What else do I have? There's a cartoon online called existentialcomics.com, and they're all worthy of seeing, but we'll provide you with a link to one called The Death of Hypatia. It's number 163. 
I have got a couple of histories here, a couple of sites that will let you know a little bit of the history of Alexandria itself, which is always good if you are going to examine the lives of the people that operated in a city to know a little bit of the history. A link to Monticello.org about the creation of the Library of Congress, if you want to go down that rabbit hole. which is similar to the Great Library at Alexandria. Also, the specific verses during the eye for an eye, turn the other cheek debate. That is a rabbit hole many of you might like to examine. So it's from BibleReasons.com and it simply pulls out all the relevant quotes and puts them side by side. On TakeBackHalloween.org, there are instructions as to how to make your own Hypatia costume for Halloween. <laughs> this is all of you on Twitter, by the way. I guess that was a good tweet. I love Take Back Halloween. I think it's such a great, I don't even know what to call it. It's like movement, I suppose. There's a website, but they don't sell anything other than the idea that sexy witches and sexy kittens and se- sexy pirates have no place at Halloween. We should be dressing up as, you know, historical women. Well, I think you're right, because even Hermione Granger has been tarted up, and you know how I feel about that. Mm-hmm. So yes, <laughs> visit there for some legitimate homages to women of days gone by for your Halloween costume, if that's your thing. Also, there is a website called astrolabes.org that gives you so much more astrolabe information than you will ever need, including links to museums where they are housed, a whole page devoted to the one in Kansas City, so you can read all about that and its origin and and i think that might be my last link there are some paintings i guess out there the one you see the most is actually from a french book written in the 1800s and that's her murder and she's a very young woman there's also a painting of her by charles william mitchell it's ridiculous to me she's a nude on an altar and i guess we're supposed to think this is where she's gonna get murdered but she doesn't have fear in her eyes i don't know I wasn't a fan, but (laughs) I can't think of any reason why a woman would need to be nude on a church altar. To give the person that commissioned the portrait an excuse to have a nude hanging on the wall. Come on, Susan. I know, right? (laughs) So in closing, tragically, Hypatia is known today mostly for the way she died rather than the way that she lived. By all accounts, she was a remarkable woman who was simply caught up in interesting times, working in her fields of mathematics, philosophy, and science in a time and a place that was undergoing a major change in philosophy itself. Hypatia, we're so sorry that happened to you, and thank you for being an inspiration. Thanks for listening. Bye. If you liked what you heard today, please tell a few friends about us or leave a review for us on iTunes. I am holding down the fort over on Instagram, and Susan is in charge over on Twitter. You can catch us both at different times on Facebook. More exciting news on the Facebook front, we have a new group over at the History Chicks Podcast Lounge. There is not a difficult entrance exam, so we can't wait to see you over there. There is a new Pinterest board for Hypatia, as usual. We have one for every single subject we have ever done. Thanks again to James Harper as Harper Active for letting us use his music in the middle of the show. And the end music is Made of Stars by Xavier and Ophelia, courtesy of music.mevio.com.
stone.